It's a lot easier now for me to see what Jesus's message was all about. Right. And that message was clearly and obviously not one of love and peace. This is not about self-protection. It is about power. They want to lord power over people they dislike or whomever they consider to be a threat. And what greater power is there in the mind of someone who thinks this way than knowing that they can take the life of someone with whom they fail to identify if circumstance allows it? Is there or is there not a qualitative difference between a group of people without an organized military or police force protecting themselves from real probable threats and an industrialized modern society that has those things built into the structure of it? What sort of threat or attack would cause you to unholster your weapon and use it when you've got the power of God behind you already. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective and a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And And it's it's time to get unbound. If you don't have a sword, Sell your cloak and buy one. That's Jesus speaking right there. Luke twenty-two thirty-six. 36. Uh, but, but those who live by the sword die by the sword. Also Jesus in Matthew 26, 52. Yeah, fuck that. Do not think that I have come to bring peace. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Jesus, Matthew 10, 34. Everything except fuck that. <laughs> I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. So this episode is dropping on Easter Sunday, and I just wanted to say that if you opted to sleep in today and tune into us instead of getting up and going to church, you did the right thing. I think it's important to not look backward. If Easter Sunday has always been a big deal for you, and maybe this is the first year that you aren't in church on Easter, again, good for you. You are doing the right thing for you. You're doing the right thing for your mental and emotional health. And you are taking big steps toward getting and staying unbound. And that is, in my opinion, the most important part of this is that we keep moving forward and not backward. I don't know about you, but I've been inundated over the last week with invitations to literally every church across the Fruited Plain and even a few outside the United States. It's crazy how they just advertise everywhere. And I can't help but think that they know that People aren't going to travel from Massachusetts to the Cayman Islands for church. It's just another way for them to get another little cash grab in. And instead of sending them money, I've been sending them good information. I've been doing what I ask my listeners to do and just inundating them with information. They hit my news feed. I'm going to hit back with a little bit of information about why you really shouldn't be going to church this weekend. And there was an upsurge of downloads for episode 19. If you need another reason when you're done with this, if you need some kind of confirmation that you've done the right thing staying home, when you're done here, just pull up episode 19. It's called The COVID-19 Crisis When Toxic Faith Goes Viral. We did that episode last year as an effort to get people to decide not to go to church in the middle of a pandemic. And even though I wasn't all that optimistic about the way this was going to go just based on the attitudes of a lot of people out there, I really didn't think that we'd be having to make the same appeal two years in a row, but here we are. So if you're avoiding corporate worship, for whatever reason, you're avoiding it. You're doing the right thing. 
And I just wanted to take a quick minute and let you know that our Patreon is up at patreon.com slash Unbound Podcast Network. And we could really use your support if you are in any way able to help us. And if not, we get that too. Help yourself to the content. We're here for you, and we're here to make sure that you keep moving on that right path and in the right direction, looking forward and not backward. So patreon.com slash Unbound Podcast Network. And again, tell someone new about the show this week. Share the content. It makes a difference. People find out about podcasts because other people tell them about them. And we really appreciate those of you who have made an effort to bring more people on board with this show and help more of them get and stay unbound. With that, let's just dive right into our main topic. Tonight, we are going to be talking about two bad things that go worse together, evangelicals and guns. Yes. Now, this is a topic that has so many subtopics that Mm. can be applied to it. When I was trying to decide where I was going to go with this episode, when I was putting together the notes, I was trying to figure out whether or not we were going to frame this from the standpoint of gun control whether we were going to cite a bunch of examples like we did last week. I thought about taking it in the direction of evangelical thought and the processes that go into society's attitudes about this. I kind of settled on a combination of things because we could probably do a series on this, but personally, I don't want to talk about guns for weeks. No. And there are things that I came up with in my notes that I know would go better with other topics as well. So I had to go through and just decide which bits I was going to use for this and the direction that we were going to take it. You know, most of the episodes that I put together for this show are pretty well organized. I get a really, really good idea of what the flow is going to be. This time, it just sort of emerged as I went. And I just picked out the information that I think is most relevant to this particular conversation, and it may very well spur on more conversations. But for right now, I just want to give everybody a better idea of how evangelicals think about this stuff, because this is one of those situations where I say all the time that this really isn't an evangelical problem. I'm not convinced that this is a 100% evangelical problem either, but the overwhelming influence of evangelical thought on this particular subject, I think is worth exploring, especially on the heels of conversations about violence in Christian media and in other areas of evangelical life, thought, influence, etc. I thought that this would be a good way to frame this particular subject. And hopefully by the end, you understand just how big a problem this is how big it can get, and what you can do to try and start making things a little bit better for our society when it comes to who is going to be allowed to carry a gun. I'm going to be drawing a lot of my thoughts tonight from a couple of articles. The first one comes from The New Yorker, and it's an article entitled God, Guns, and Country, the Evangelical Fight Over Firearms. And I found this quote very interesting. Conservative culture often conflates Christianity and nationalism, placing the American flag above the cross. And that is so true. It's not even a matter of a constitutional right. In some instances, they'll just defer directly to God 
and the Constitution, well, that's just a convenience. And we've got this, we've got these words in there about keeping and bearing arms that we're just going to pick up and run with. And that's how they form their arguments about a lot of things. Societal considerations don't really matter. This is what God wants. Right. And that's what's most important. In 2018, the executive vice president of the National Rifle Association, Wayne LaPierre, said that the Second Amendment was not a right, quote, bestowed by man, but granted by God to all Americans as our American birthright, just in point of fact. Also from the article, in 2017, after a shooting at a Southern Baptist church near San Antonio, Texas, left 26 people dead and 20 injured, some Christian leaders called for members of their church to arm themselves. Robertson Jeffress, the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Dallas, said on Fox and Friends, well, that should tell you pretty much what you need to know about what yeah. he has to say about anything, mm -hmm. that he felt more secure knowing that his congregants were carrying weapons. I don't know about you, but I don't typically feel more secure when I'm in a room full of people who are packing heat. No. I just don't. I know. And... I don't care what their reasons are for carrying. I don't care whether or not it's legal. I don't care what classes they've taken. I haven't met a private citizen yet who I thought absolutely positively needed to carry a handgun. Well, Spider, you're not a woman, and we have issues of our own. I know a couple of women who carry. Yeah. We have issues of our own, and you have never had the experience of X, Y, and Z. And you know what? You're right. I haven't. But I'm not sure what purpose it serves to carry a deadly weapon in situations where the other person probably doesn't. And even if they do pull their weapon, they've already pulled their weapon. So what are you going to do? Do you really think that you're going to outsmart someone who's already got a gun on you and you can get to it in time to do whatever it is you're going to do? You see, I'm going to offer a little bit more of my thoughts on this a little bit later. But we have a system in place in the modern world that has, at least in theory, maybe not so much in practice, and I'll get to that too, but in theory, it exists to protect the population on a whole. And there was a time when we didn't have this. There was a time when it may have been necessary to arm up to protect our land, to protect our property, to protect our families and even ourselves. But that was a while ago. Yeah. And you know what? The Constitution was also written a while ago, but it also never intended to put guns in the hands of every person out there. No. That is not what the Second Amendment is there to accomplish, but the NRA would like you to think that it is. There's also a huge evangelical presence within the NRA, and the support for them is tremendous. So all stuff that we're going to expand on in a little bit. But these comments from Robertson Jeffress are yet another example of how evangelicals are turning the tables on themselves. It's also an example of how they never learn from their own rhetoric and mistakes. What pastor wants to turn his church into a theater for warfare? Answer, an angry one who just watched 26 people gunned down and 20 more injured by a maniacal, hopelessly racist domestic terrorist with a gun. This was not a troubled young American man. He was a domestic terrorist. Let's not forget about that. Let's not cushion the descriptors here and just because the gunman was white and a U.S. citizen, okay? Now, for those who don't remember, it went down like this. 
This comes from the Wikipedia about the incident. On November 5th, 2017, Devin Patrick Kelly of New Braunfels, Texas, fatally shot 26 people and wounded 20 others during a mass shooting at the First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs, Texas. The attack was the deadliest mass shooting in Texas and the fifth deadliest mass shooting in United States history. It was the deadliest shooting in an American place of worship in modern history, surpassing the Charleston Church shooting of 2015 and the Waddell Buddhist Temple shooting of 1991. Kelly was prohibited by law from purchasing or possessing firearms and ammunition due to a domestic violence conviction in a court-martial while he was in the United States Air Force. The Air Force failed to record the conviction in the Federal Bureau of Investigation National Crime Information Center database, which is used by the National Instant Check System to flag prohibited purchases. So one government organization dropped the ball, and one that really fucking shouldn't have. Yeah. And nearly 50 people suffered for it. Now, it wasn't the FBI's fault. It was the domestic terrorist's fault. But it could have been avoided. Yeah. That's part, at least in part, what pisses me off about this. Now, on December 2nd, 2015, a terrorist attack consisting of a mass shooting and an attempted bombing occurred at the Inland Regional Center in San Bernardino, California. The perpetrators, Syed Rizwan Farouk, and Tashfeen Malik, a married couple living in the city of Redlands, targeted a San Bernardino County Department of Public Health training event and Christmas party of about 80 employees in a rented banquet room. 14 people were killed and 22 others were seriously injured. Farouk was a U.S.-born citizen of Pakistani descent who worked as a health department employee. Malik was a Pakistani-born green card holder. So what does that have to do with evangelicals? Oh, just wait. After the shooting, Jerry Falwell Jr., the president of Liberty University, urged his students to procure gun permits. He said, quote, I've always thought that if more good people had concealed carry permits, then we could end those Muslims before they walked in, he told students. I mean, did you did you catch that? Did you catch what he said there? So we see that signature brand of evangelical racism and hatred for any religion that isn't theirs right i'm pretty sure that if you've been listening for a while you're also listening to some other content on subjects like this and you know the kind of absolute prick this guy is that also actually came from the new yorker article but there was also some other interesting stuff in this article the article itself was actually about an evangelical named shane claiborne who has started a grassroots movement that promotes gun control And he had some interesting things to say about this whole situation. There were two separate quotes in the article. I'm going to kind of mush them together because they fit. He said, quote, you can't have a beer at Liberty, but you can have a gun. The same people who worship the Prince of Peace are packing heat. Yeah. I couldn't put it any more eloquently than that. That's for sure. Liberty University, by the way, is also home to a sprawling firing range, you know, so you can keep your skills sharp if you encounter any of those Muslims. Yeah. You know what I mean? Luke twenty two thirty six b I read it right at the beginning. It says, if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. And this is one of those major verses that they turn to for proof that this is what God wants. Right. God wants us to take up arms. Jesus is saying a sword is more important than clothing. It's a mind-blowing sort of thing. Yes, it's only one verse. Well, you're taking it out of context. Really? Am I? Because with all due respect, 
it's not the only time that Jesus advocates for violence. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. Come on now. It's a lot easier now for me to see what Jesus's message was all about. Right. And that message was clearly and obviously not one of love and peace. Now, there's a part of me that says that it's better that most people still look at it from that perspective. Because if they looked at it from the perspective of what he actually said and what some of his motivations actually were, things could possibly be even worse at this point. Right. So maybe it's better that this facade kind of remains in place not to the extent that people give up their entire lives for this religion, but to the extent that it shields society just a little bit Mm. from what the real underlying agenda is within Christianity. Because I hate to say it, but the white evangelicals are not that far off. They're a much closer representation, I think, of the Hebrew Yahweh and certainly of Jesus because Jesus may have had this peacemaker kind of persona, but a lot of people use their personality and magnetism to kind of get things in under the radar. And some of these words of Jesus were, I believe, I very, very strongly believe were part of that. We're going to talk about love and peace and love your neighbor as yourself. But if your neighbor fucks with you too much, then, you know, pull out your sword. Oh, no, if you don't have a sword, then get one because you're going to need one. That's kind of the messaging. Yeah. It, it swings pretty rapidly from one side to the other. Yeah. And that really is problematic. But in certain ways, I think that the more extreme among them have a clearer picture of the messaging that was supposed to be delivered here, which leaves me quite relieved that they are still in a minority. Yeah. Definitely. Shane Glaborn, as I said a minute ago, is an evangelical. I'm trying hard not to hold that against him because he (laughs) is, in fact, a liberal evangelical. But for the reasons I just mentioned, I do think that the evangelical in him still is not seeing the big picture because he's another one that sees Jesus as preaching a gospel of peace. Yeah. And that just really isn't the case. Like many left-leaning evangelicals, and yes, they are out there. Claiborne's platform is predicated on a version of Jesus that admonishes against violence, but as the verses above and some of our earlier content on this show reveals, violence and violent messaging are prevalent in the words of Jesus and the doctrines and interpretations of those doctrines held by conservative evangelicals. So let's take a closer look at evangelicals and gun ownership. Just a few statistics here. And many of these are coming from, well, all of them, all of these stats that I'm going to give you right now came from a Pew Research study that I have linked out to in the show notes for you. Men are more likely to own guns than are women. It's 39% versus 22% respectively. People who live in rural areas own guns in higher numbers than residents in urban areas. That's 46 versus 19% respectively. Republicans and Republican-leaning independents are more than twice as likely to own guns, 44% and 20% respectively. 36% of white people in America own guns, but only 24% of black people and 15% of Latinas do. So the guns are in the hands of the white people. Let's make sure that we understand that. They're in the hands of of the white people. And a lot of those white people are also evangelicals. And a lot of those 
evangelicals are also capital W white evangelicals. Nearly two-thirds of gun owners report owning more than one gun. 29% boast owning five or more. White evangelical Protestants own guns at a higher rate than any other people group. That's 44%. When compared to the overall population of the United States, where only 30% of everyone owns a gun. Only 32% of white evangelical Protestants call for stricter gun control measures versus the majority, which is 52% of U.S. voters. I found that interesting, to be perfectly honest. 32% seems high. That's almost one out of three who thinks that we need tougher gun laws. So in my mind, that's encouraging because 32% really is not that small a number. And there's room to work there. I really think that there is room to work on these attitudes, mindsets. There are people out there who are educable about this stuff. And they're in the truth seeker set of the people that we are reaching out to. 32% of white evangelical Protestants. It's encouraging. 32% want stricter gun control laws. But, you know, it's not at all surprising why white evangelicals, Republicans, and right-wing extremist thinkers lead in support of access to guns. And here are just a few of the reasons. I'm drawing right now from an article from LGBTQ Nation, and there was a good bit of shock mixed with snark in this article, and you're going to get a little bit of both mm. in the next couple of minutes. But these are some of the reasons that they give for why there is so much support for free ownership of firearms. And the more you listen to this, the more sinister it's going to start sounding. The increase in Muslim, Jewish, Sikh, Hindu, and even atheist and other non-religious identifying people being elected to public office at federal and state levels is a big one. Mm. Also, women and people of color are gaining more social and economic power in the United States. This has not been such a big deal in a lot of other parts of the world, but here it's a big deal. We just, in in the year 2020, we just elected our first female vice president. Right. Whereas most European nations have had female leaders who weren't second in command. They were the leaders of their, and are, leaders of their nations and this has been a thing for quite a long time the first one that i can remember and i know it goes back further than this but the first one that i can remember was margaret thatcher right she was when we were kids she was prime minister of england so but there have been plenty since i also remember the 84 election where ronald reagan mopped the floor with walter mondale right and i don't think that that was because reagan was such a great candidate or that he was doing such a great job spoiler alert he wasn't but i think that the overwhelming landslide victory in that election had to do with the fact that walter mondale chose geraldine ferraro as his running mate and america was not ready for that it took this long for a woman to rise to that kind of seat of power in America. The last thing that they brought up in this article was that white people are losing their majority status and have been for years. And a recent Gallup poll also reveals that religion in this country is on the decline. Their days are numbered and they know it. Like I said last week, and again, I'm not going to downplay their numbers. They make up a quarter of the population. I get this. But don't give them too much power inside your own heads. That power is 
diminishing over time. And that leaves the door wide open for those better conversations that I talk about in the opening to every episode. Mm -hmm. And better conversations are happening. There have been better conversations over the last decade or so about things like gay rights, gay marriage, marijuana legalization, all these things that just make baby Jesus cry. We are talking about them openly. We're accepting them more openly. That's further proof as far as I'm concerned that their messaging is starting to get a little bit lost. So to recap, they support guns largely because they're racists, misogynists, and cowards. And I'll say it again, I found myself in the middle of some very tenuous interpersonal encounters with people, and yet in almost 50 years on this planet, I have yet to find myself in a situation where I wished I'd had a gun to protect myself. It's never happened. Literally, it has never happened. I have never come home shaking saying, if I had only had a gun, I've never reached that point. So what exactly does this have to do with evangelical attitudes about guns? What do minorities in government have to do with it? What do things like Muslims in places of power in our government have to do with this? What about white people losing their majority status? What does any of this have to do with guns? Well, these are all things that evangelicals fear. Right. And as I've said many times before, fear is a huge part of the messaging in evangelical faith. So, of course, it's going to get interwoven into this. This is not about self-protection. It is about power. They want to lord power over people they dislike or whomever they consider to be a threat. And what greater power is there in the mind of someone who thinks this way than knowing that they can take the life of someone with whom they fail to identify if circumstance allows it? Mm. And I love these quotes from the same article. If you need to feel the pulse... Oh, God, this one. I love this quote. If you need to feel the pulsating heat of a throbbing weapon of war in your hands, join the military and serve your country. Or go to a firing range where you can overcompensate for your penile insecurities. Burn. Burn. Oh, I had an oh snap moment reading that earlier. (laughs) Our country has no higher rates of mental illness than our peer nations, but no other comparable country suffers the casualties to guns that the United States does. We must remember first and foremost that hate is not a mental illness. I'm going to stop on that for just a moment, and I'm going to say that I definitely think that mental illness plays a huge part in a lot of mass shootings. But I also understand that not all mental illness is something you're born with. It right. can be installed. Yes. And I don't know personally of a better system for installing mental illness in people than evangelical thought. Yeah. It can lead you down some very, very, very dark roads that maybe when you were 12 or 15, you wouldn't be considering. But now at 30, 35 years old and looking at the world around you, and the way that other people are living their lives and the freedoms that they possess, the personal freedoms that they possess, especially when it comes to things like sexuality, right. can be very, very triggering. And toward the end, we're going to talk a little bit about that. And you can probably anticipate what we're going to be talking about considering what's been going on in the last couple of weeks. So many shootings. I mean, it's enough to make your head spin. And it's still just a fraction of what's actually happening out there because a lot of these mass shootings, they don't make it out of the town that they happen in. 
They don't make it out of the local news. We're talking about the stuff that gets national attention, and it's that proverbial tip of the iceberg again. So when you take all of these things that evangelicals are afraid of and then start tagging onto them the ability to eliminate them in aggressive and violent ways, you have a recipe for the types of things that we see every single day in this country. Now, I'm not going to sit here and point a finger of blame at evangelical faith for every instance of gun violence, for every mass shooting, for anything that people go out and do as a matter of their own, I don't even like to use the term free will, as a matter of the choices that they make for themselves, that they're going to walk out of their house and they're going to do this thing. It doesn't all originate with evangelicalism. But the way that people think about these things has a lot of roots in it. And no, not every mass shooter is an evangelical or holds to evangelical ideals. But the way that society has been influenced by evangelical thought has a lot to do with the decisions that get made to do things like these. And yes, mental illness is part of it, but it's only part of it. Now, when you take mental illness and couple it with something like Christian counseling, then you do get the direct tie-in. A couple more quotes from the article. Additionally, it is shameful that our young people must undergo active shooter drills and carry bulletproof backpacks to school. I'll add to that having to pass through metal detectors every morning and being held to dress codes that aim to curtail carrying in weapons and... Don't even get me started about the time when I was substitute teaching during Sandy Hook. And just a couple of days later, the admins and other people from the school were going to classrooms, talking to first and second graders about these things, Mm -hmm. who some of them hadn't heard anything about this and heard about it first when somebody just barged into the middle of a class and started talking to them about it. I personally thought that it was very inappropriate. Yeah. to have adults coming into classrooms and scaring kids. I do understand that there's a preparedness aspect to this that everyone needs to be in on, but there are better ways. Oh, yeah. There was a lot of panic around yeah. Sandy Hook. It was, at least in this area, because we're close, we're just one state over, and it really is about the closest that something like this has come to us. There was a false alarm at one of our town's high schools. It was it was either last year or the year before. It was there the was before. a false alarm around here. But this was the closest that it got to us. And I think that it rattled a lot of people around here when that happened. And I do get that sense of urgency, that need for preparedness. I do not get the urgency or need to frighten children. Right. So I'm really with them on that one. Last quote. As a misbehaving and obstinate child who places themselves in harm's way by stepping too close to the edge of a high cliff, we as a society must place restrictions for the physical and emotional safety of our society. Translation, if these people are going to act like toddlers, police them like they're toddlers. And I agree 100%. Not only do many evangelicals own guns, They preach a loud gospel of resistance and self-defense, even to the point of giving, above and beyond their tithes, of course, to people and initiatives that further their own opinions and agendas. 
just for the sake of example, they support the NRA in numbers larger than any other people group. And it was largely evangelicals who gave more than $2 million to Kyle Rittenhouse via the Christian funding platform Give, Send, Go to cover legal expenses and show overwhelming support to this wannabe suburban commando who killed two people during the Kenosha unrest last August. The motivations to both bear arms and support those who do and rally to their side when they kill are all the product of the same thing that evangelicals love to perpetuate. And again, it's a little thing called fear. Tell people that there are looming threats all around them. Tell them to fear people who don't look like them. Teach them that the world is polarized into two categories, us and them, and that them is a group that poses a constant threat. When you can get people to start thinking like this, you can get them to pack heat and you can siphon more money off of them to keep perpetuating the notion that this world is evil and that we need to defend ourselves from it at all costs. That kind of thinking permeates all kinds of subjects in evangelical thought. We are taught as evangelicals to look at ourselves as basically aliens and strangers yeah. and that this world really isn't ours. We're told to expect to be persecuted. We're told to expect suffering in this life. When you're brought up, and a lot of people are brought up from the time that they can even begin to understand any of this, they are brought up to believe that there are dangers all around them. Yes. Um, again, I'm thinking about the song Minefield by Petra, mm -hmm. where it's right there in the lyrics, life is a minefield. You get people thinking like that, yeah. looking over their shoulders constantly and just being afraid of the entire world around them. It's really, really easy at that point to convince them that they need a little bit of power in their corner right? and not the God kind of power, the gunpowder kind of power. Mm hmm. In an article from AP News on this subject, we read that conservative evangelicals believe that the world can be an evil place and sometimes violence is necessary to achieve order. That's a quote from Kristen Kobe Dumez. Probably butchered the name, but it's in the show notes too. She's the author of Jesus and John Wayne, How Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. And I think that she is definitely onto something there. Mm. This idea is certainly popular among fans of John Correa, the founder of Active Self-Protection, a self-defense training program advertised as a way to help, quote, people in all walks of life to develop the attitude, skills, and plan to defend themselves and their families from harm. Correa also runs a YouTube channel where he comments on footage of violent incidents and attempts to show how good guys with guns might have mitigated the situations. Yeah. Oh, my God. You know, anytime I see something like that, I think to myself, you're not taking into account every variable that would be in play here. This situation played out the way that it did because that's the way the pieces were set up on the chessboard. Move a bishop and a knight around and watch what happens. The game changes completely. Right. So, no, sending good guys with guns into the middle of that. This guy has either watched a few too many superhero movies or he's watched a little bit too much David A.R. White. Yeah. Um, one of the two. Mm -hmm. um, good guys with guns. Yeah. Let's just take a couple of those chess men and put them wherever we want on the board because we think that's where they're going to be most useful. Well, now start the game up again and you realize just all the different places and strategies that can and will change when you throw that kind of a wrench into the game. It will change. 
You cannot look at footage and say, this is what would happen if people like us were there and did X, Y, and Z. Because the entire game would change. It's nothing but pointless rhetoric. It's nothing but a way to get people thinking in the direction of carrying a gun. That's it. He also is, surprise, a passionate supporter of Jesus, a former pastor of West Greenway Bible Church, and an adjunct biblical studies professor at Arizona Christian University. He's also hosted a conference called Bullets and Bibles that included a worship service and sermon, along with a ton of deceptive and subversive information designed to further the notion that carrying weapons and being prepared to use them is somehow righteous. He said, we make no bones about the fact that we try to make it centered on Jesus and that he's glorified in our time. Great. So killing people or being instant in season when the opportunity to draw that weapon arises Mm. is now a good way to glorify Jesus. Got it. Correa often invokes scripture to argue that in the event of an attack, a Christian has a right to self-defense. Well, if you're being attacked, it doesn't matter what your religion is. You have the right to self-defense. It's just how you go about it. He pointed to the book of Nehemiah contending that the biblical figure encouraged private citizens to arm themselves in self-defense while rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. Um, What I want to know is what constitutes an attack. Also, is there or is there not a qualitative difference between a group of people without an organized military or police force protecting themselves from real probable threats and an industrialized modern society that has those things built into the structure of it? And here is just one more pearl of wisdom from this guy. I have the right to set my boundaries and no one has the right to harm me physically or to threaten my life, he said. I have the right to defend the boundary that says I will not be forced and I will not be murdered. Um, Mr. Correa, Mr. Correa, I have but one thing to say to that. Because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the most high, thy habitation, there shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone." Thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder, the young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under feet. And this is God speaking, or at least what the psalmist would want God to say in this particular instance. Because he hath set his love upon me, therefore will I deliver him. I will set him on high because he hath known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. That comes from Psalm 91, 11 through 15. You want to tell me where it says anything about you picking up a gun in any of that? Because what I'm reading there is that God is supposed to be your protection. That is what I am reading in these verses, is that God is the source of protection, not a gun. And while we're on the subject, is your God able to protect you without any help or isn't he? If he is, why do you need a gun? What's the real motivation? What sort of threat or attack would cause you to unholster your weapon and use it when you've got the power of God behind you already? And what sort of person would make you draw your gun that fast? What do they look like? Mm. What's the actual threat that you are perceiving here? You know, I'm just curious. Of course, they're rhetorical questions. He's not here for me to ask. I would love for him to be here for me to ask. 
but he's not. So I'm just going to put that in your head and let you come to your own conclusion, especially if you're still in this on the fence. How do you reconcile those two things? How do you reconcile what's in those verses with what this guy is telling you about your right to protect yourself and not be murdered? Well, if I read my Bible correctly, God is supposed to take care of that, not us. Now, my original intent, uh, like I talked about a little bit earlier with this episode, was to examine the motivations of mass shooters. But like with a lot of topics that we cover on this show, it's difficult without an insane amount of digging to find anything out about the perpetrators that delves into their personal lives or beliefs. There are a number of parallels, though, that I think have to come from the kind of thought processes that are rooted in evangelical ideology. I don't think that many of the people who donated to Kyle Rittenhouse were even worried about his religious affiliation. All that mattered to them was that he set out to deliver Kenosha from evil. Mm. And that's all they cared about because most of them think the exact same way that this John Correa does. Mm. And that's just the simple fact of the matter. The messaging doesn't change that much from church to church, folks. It may get a little bit more of a cushion in some settings than others, but it doesn't change that much. It really does not. So I'll just ask it again. Isn't God supposed to be the actual deliverer or am I missing something in those verses? Am I missing something? I really don't think I am. And you know, you can twist this any way you want, the same way that a lot of stuff got twisted for us in Bible college about what this verse means versus what this verse means. And these stories are so different because and, and whatnot. You can apply anything that you want to that. And then turn around and say, well, technically, didn't God tell him to do it? Well, in the Old Testament, God seemed to have a lot to say. He took out a lot of contracts on a lot of people, usually leaving it to people to carry out his dirty work. But in those instances, the voice of God was apparently clearly heard. And I mean audibly heard. He hasn't had anything to say recently. Like, for anyone who's walking around on the planet right now, no one has ever heard him talk. So how does one make that determination? Well, just like Susan B. Anthony once told us, God's opinion on anything seems to be uniformly congruous with that of the person he speaks to. How convenient. Mm. That phrase ran through my head a few times, reading some of the things that these people had to say about this. It's a very, very convenient way of looking at it. And it's a very convenient thing that God thinks like his crackpot followers. Very convenient. I do want to talk about two shootings in particular, since we're kind of steering in that direction. But first, let's take a look at the common profile of a mass shooter. And you can tell me where much of this motivation comes from. This is an article from vice.com. I'm going to read a quick quote and then just provide you with a little bit of information. A new Department of Justice-funded study of all mass shootings, killings of four or more people in a public place since 1966, found that the shooters typically have an experience with childhood trauma, a personal crisis or specific grievance, and a script or examples that validate their feelings or provide a roadmap. And then there's the last and most important thing, they have access to a firearm. So let's just for a moment take a look at these four things in a little bit more depth. Childhood trauma. Incidences of child abuse are high in evangelical homes, and that abuse takes on every imaginable form 
From early indoctrination to corporal punishment to a multitude of mental and emotional abuses that erode the self-image of the individual. Then there's the part about a personal crisis or specific grievance. These are moral issues, and those morals have some very familiar points of rhetoric. It's not uniform, but it's there in a lot of examples, especially in instances where the shooter is taken alive. You learn more about them, and a lot of this stuff starts to come to the surface. And again, most of the time, they're not going to delve into their religious beliefs. They're not going to delve into the spiritual part of it at all. Most reputable news sources are going to stick to the facts, and they're going to stick to the things that people actually want to know. But there are details that get left out that you can, I think, definitely read between the lines and understand where some of it comes from. Then there's the notion of a script of examples. Well, script of examples, the Bible, anyone? Um, people like John Correa, anyone? They also use things like racial stereotypes, or you can read that as manifestos of racial opinions. Let's yeah. really call it that and a hate for various people groups along racial, gender, and alternative lifestyle lines. And then, of course, there's what I believe really is the heart of, of the problem here, and that is the access to guns. And honestly, I think the first three scream compelling reasons why there needs to be less access to guns. Let's look at two examples of mass shootings and the evangelical ties that exist to them. First, the shooting at Pulse in Orlando in 2016. On June 12, 2016, Omar Mateen, a 29-year-old local man, killed 49 people and wounded 53 more in a mass shooting inside Pulse, a gay nightclub in Orlando, Florida. Orlando police officers shot and killed him after a three-hour standoff. In this instance, the perpetrator was in fact a Muslim extremist who had made two pilgrimages to Saudi Arabia prior to the shooting and was pretty devout in what he believed. In a lot of different facets of his life, his faith played a huge role. So what's the evangelical tie-in here? I think it's in the response of some Christian leaders and organizations. Not only were their canned, politically correct responses absolutely overflowing with indifference, there were also those who had the audacity to pepper their attempts to distance themselves from the actions of the shooter while at the same time drawing attention to their own skewed beliefs about homosexuality. And I'm reading now directly from an article from CruxNow.com. Matthew Vines, author of God and the Gay Christian, noted in an op-ed for Time magazine that nearly 50% of LGBTQ Americans are Christians like himself. For them, Sunday mornings are a reminder that they are not accepted in many pews, that many traditional churches view homosexuality as incompatible with Christian beliefs. The core problem is that so many Christians still talk about the LGBTQ community like they're not a part of the church and like they're not part of the same family. That's the core problem. They use othering language that presupposes that Christians and LGBTQ people are separate, mutually exclusive groups. For instance, he said many of the statements made by prominent Christians didn't name LGBTQ people as targets of the massacre. One of them was Reverend Samuel Rodriguez, president of the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference. And he said, quote, today's deplorable act of terrorism goes against everything we stand for as Americans and Christians. We call upon all Americans to come together for the purpose of building a firewall of love, grace, truth, and respect against intolerance, hatred, bigotry, and violence. 
that's nice. It's kind kind of right. has a rosy sort of feel to it, but it really does lack a certain sincerity. Right. There's a lot of buzzwords in there, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of rhetorical language in there. Right. And it's such a cookie-cutter response to something like this. It's like, well, we've got to say something, so let's say this. And let's try and sound nice about it because, you know, Jesus is supposed to be nice and shit. But some Christian leaders, back to the back to the article, last little bit, some Christian leaders also suggested in their statements that they did not agree with homosexuality. In a tweet shared two million times, Russell Moore, president of Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, said, quote, Christian, your gay or lesbian neighbor is probably really scared right now. Whatever our genuine disagreements, let's love and pray. Let's look at the two things that are wrong in this statement. Christian, your gay or lesbian neighbor is probably really scared right now. What did he do there? He disconnected Christianity from alternative lifestyles. Yeah. Whatever our genuine disagreements, let's love and pray. (laughs) Nothing like adding a little passive aggressive jab to the end of your statement just trying to make it sound sentimental yeah yeah no that was a passive aggressive thing to say if i ever heard one i mean what's the genuine disagreement it's like i think i'm human you think i'm not well that's that's most of it i mean i don't think that they look at them as not human they just look at them as lost causes hopeless cases these people are going to go to hell because they refuse to do what jesus says well for starters, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. Not one damn thing. Not one damn thing. That's right. how much it meant to him. Right. So let's make sure that we're keeping that in mind. All of this hate for anyone of any kind of alternative lifestyle, I think you can lump pretty much all of them into this. Yeah. Because there are other alternative lifestyles besides gay-lesbian relationships. There are a plethora Yes. Of alternative lifestyles and none of them that evangelicals will agree with or embrace or even pretend to accept. Right. And that last little quote is proof positive of that as far as I'm concerned. In any way you want to look at this, there is advocacy for violence coming through every word that these people say. Whether it's the way that they shy away from getting too involved in the conversation, whether it's how they separate LGBTQ people from normal people and Mm. Christians, okay? Big air quotes on that, by the way, normal people and Christians, in the way that they provide these canned responses to things because we have to say something, we have to keep up this front, but the messaging that comes from their pulpits is probably and I can tell you from experience, is very, very, very different. Mm. So what you hear them say in public, these little sound bites and snippets and tweets that they send out there to make themselves look good, well, for starters, they do a shitty job because it doesn't make them look good to any thinking person, to anyone who doesn't think like them. These statements don't really mean a whole hell of a lot. And to those who do think like them, it kind of helps them feel a little bit better about the way that they feel about the people who were targeted for this particular attack. So it wasn't an evangelical that gunned them down. Evangelicals were kind of wishy-washy, but it goes even further than that. The subtle ways that they advocate these things is at the same time alarming and infuriating. 
Anyone can make public statements that they think make them look good, but when you offer thoughts and prayers in one breath and vilify the victims in the next, your true colors show whether you want them to or not. I truly do not think that they even realize this. I don't think that their brains can piece it together. In their minds, they are showing support. Right. In their minds, they're doing something positive. That's the crazy part about this. But what they're really doing is reinforcing in people's minds the idea that homosexuality is wrong, and that is why this happened. It sucks that people died, but this is what happens when you live outside of God's plan. Bad things happen to you. Make no mistake about it. That's the real messaging here. Now, let's look at how all this evangelical support panned out just two months later. As evangelical leaders gathered here for the American Renewal Project Conference, that's in Orlando, Florida, a gathering of religious conservatives that features Donald Trump, they made me say his name again, and Marco Rubio as headliners, pro-LGBTQ protesters lined the streets waving rainbow flags and pictures of people killed at the Pulse nightclub two months previous. For those close to the mass shooting, the deadliest in U.S. history, the conference is a distasteful act dismissive of the lost lives. Those attending the American Renewal Project event defended themselves by saying that the controversial confab was only a gathering of faith leaders seeking political empowerment. Oh, yeah, nothing harmful or subversive about that. The concern is that just two short months after the massacre of 49 individuals belonging to the Latino and LGBTQ community, Two individuals as prominent as Marco Rubio and Donald Trump chose to address a conference of people who would demean us and demonize us and further hate culture toward the LGBTQ community, said Lexi Wright, president of Space Coast Pride. The event, which was chiefly marketed to pastors, attracted many self-identified conservative voters and a message from American Renewal Project founder David Lane printed on event schedules and encouraged religious leaders to, quote, Return to your church and mobilize your people in the pews to register, to vote, and to take their Christian convictions with them to the voting booth. The pamphlet directly appeals to pastors' belief in, quote, religious liberty and says the next election swings on the votes of Christian citizens. Remember, what we do here is spiritual. Only the byproduct is political. I mean, I read it before. Mm-hmm. And it jarred me just like that. I had to stop on it before, too. Without God's mercy, there is no hope. Pray for the next great spiritual awakening. Oh, help me, annoying orange. You're our only hope. <laughs> Give me a fucking break. Other speakers at the event included David Barton, an evangelical leader who has advocated regulating gay sex like alcohol and cigarettes. How do you do that? I mean, the pictures that I have in my head just reading those words are enough to make me want to move on quickly here. So that's precisely what I'm going to do. Another speaker was Ken Graves, who the human rights campaign called out for creating ads denouncing same-sex couples raising children. Out with the heartfelt thoughts, prayers, and tweets, and in with the hate machine. Just two months later, Jesus fucking Christ, at least, at least move the goddamn venue. Can we do that? Can we not do this in Orlando? Yeah. Are we asking too much? 
But when you are dealing with a group of people that is that bereft of compassion, that bereft of empathy, that absorbed in their own way of thinking about things, there is no possible way that they were thinking about, or if they did think about it, that they would have cared what kind of impact doing this at that time and that place would have had on the LGBTQ community in that area. Either they didn't think about it, which is likely, or they didn't care, which is more likely. Yeah. Now I'm going to steer into a much more direct example of where this notion of the right to keep and bear arms becomes deadly in the hands of a very, very brain-addled evangelical. And y'all know what's coming, I'm sure. This is what happens when a religion that advocates for guns also addles people's thinking about their own natural, normal, and in no way, shape, or form sinful carnal urges. Mix access to guns with advocacy for gun possession with what No Illusions on The Scathing Atheist describes as, quote, a man who's afraid of his own dick, and you get this. And I'll preface it by just getting this out there. Racial tensions toward Asian Americans is nothing new in this country. Just ask any Japanese American who was interred during World War II. Then watch movies like Breakfast at Tiffany's, Sixteen Candles, a host of Disney movies from the 60s and 70s, or shows like All in the Family, and marvel at how racist depictions of and commentary about people of Asian descent were once standard in American media content. But in the wake of COVID, a new surge of hate toward Asian Americans has risen in society. One of the effects of that surge was witnessed in Atlanta on March 16th of this year, and it was part of a deadly cocktail of racism, misogyny, and evangelical purity culture. On March 16th, 2021, a series of mass shootings occurred at three spas or massage parlors in the metropolitan area of Atlanta, Georgia. Eight people were killed, six of whom were Asian women, and one other person was wounded. A suspect, 21-year-old Robert Aaron Long, was taken into custody that day. That's from the Wikipedia on this subject. And before we go any further into that, let's look at the stats on the shooter. Let's look at Robert Aaron Long. He was an evangelical. He was a conservative Southern Baptist. That was his flavor. He had extensive exposure to purity culture. He had spent time in Hope Quest, an evangelical treatment facility for sex addiction. And let's just make this abundantly crystal clear. There is no such fucking thing. Pardon the pun. The treatment facility was within walking distance of one of the targeted businesses. So when I read that, the first thing I thought of was Silence of the Lambs. Mm. What was Buffalo Bill's real issue? He covets. And what do you covet? We covet what we see every Every day. day. So he could probably see this place from this place where he was being quote unquote treated. And I mean, a chill kind of ran up my spine because that was the immediate thing that came to my mind. Yeah. He was also a regular customer at two of the spas that he targeted. And lastly, he viewed the spas he allegedly targeted as, quote, a temptation that he wanted to eliminate. Mm. I'm going to give you a little bit from the Washington Post about the facility that he was in. The evangelical facility, Hope Quest in Ackworth, Georgia, sits in a secluded forest at the end of a residential street about 30 miles outside Atlanta and down the road from Young's Asian Massage. 
Police say that after killing four people and wounding a fifth there, Long drove 27 miles to two more spas in Atlanta where he fatally shot four more people. HopeQuest advertises its services for treating, quote, sex addiction and pornography addiction alongside several descriptions for what it believes these addictions could include. Long blamed his descent into addiction on pornography and used a flip phone instead of a smartphone to avoid temptation online. In addition to its work with patients on sex addiction, HopeQuest was once a hotspot for what some call conversion therapy and ex-gay rehabilitation. The founder and creator of HopeQuest, Roy Blankenship, was once considered one of the nation's foremost conversion therapists. And let's not forget that sex and pornography addiction was Ted Bundy's dying excuse for his actions and that James Dobson made sure that Bundy's statements about that were made very public. Now, you know, I still want to look at purity culture as its own topic, so I won't go off on a tangent about it here. But you can rest assured that this incident will come up in the conversation when we cover that on this show. We talk about timeliness, relevance, and social impact as the key deciding factors of what we're going to talk about here. And purity culture is one of those things that is gaining more of a foothold within evangelical circles, and it is something that really needs to be discussed and exposed. Because in extreme circumstances, this is the type of thing that what you are taught in purity culture can lead to. And by virtue of what we saw back in the middle of March, it does lead to these things. And this, again, is just one high-profile case. We don't know about the sheer number of abuses of fathers toward their daughters or husbands toward their spouses yeah. that arise out of this and how many of those turn violent or deadly. Because, again, a lot of those details kind of get swept under the rug and it is not immediately apparent what all of the surrounding details were, simply that the crime was committed that this was the who, what, where, and when of it. And you don't usually get a whole lot more than that. But just like with the subject of demon possession, we talked about how there are between five and 600 evangelical groups that are dedicated to demon possession that we know of. But what about all of these impromptu exorcisms that happen at church altar calls and happen in people's living rooms? It's a lot bigger. So... Something like this is a big, high-profile thing, but it's representative of countless smaller things that have potential to build into things like this. But getting back to the discussion of gun advocacy, the events in Atlanta make one important point clear. When your religion is rooted and built up on hate, advocacy of violence is just par for the course. And while it might not be directly endorsed, that endorsement is very obviously inferred. It starts with fueling hate and fear over nebulous groups of quote-unquote bad people and the need for quote self-defense. It culminates in actions like what we saw in Atlanta just a couple weeks ago. Those women were a threat to a man whose mind had become so addled with evangelical thought, he saw them as the enemy and defended himself against his own urges. After all, it's better to lose an eye than for your entire body to be cast into hell, according to Matthew 5.29. Call it whatever you want, but evangelical thinking flat out sanctioned the murders of those women, as it has numerous acts of gun violence from both within and outside its ranks. 
And it's just one more example of how they use fear to drive individual thoughts and actions. For every heartfelt tweet decrying the Pulse Massacre, multitudes of evangelicals sat in front of their TVs cheering for the judgment that befell the fags that went there. And for every comment from evangelical leaders decrying the actions of Robert Aaron Long, I assure you that there were and are scores of evangelicals who think, quote, those whores got what they deserved. Those sentiments both rose from the cesspools of social media when these things happened, along with an insane number of memes aimed at making light of what happened. But sometimes social media does get it right, as it did with one meme I saw just a couple days ago. And it said this, quote, No one who thinks God talks to them should be allowed to carry a gun. That one delusion is the one from which the rest spring. This delusion that God somehow talks to them, tells them to do these things, and tells them that it is their right and responsibility, not as American citizens, but as children of the Almighty, to take up arms in their defense of these nebulous, faceless, and hypothetical situations that they are so afraid of for no reason other than that someone has told them to be afraid so just so that everyone's aware shell is in fact sitting across the table from me this is one of those situations where she's just sort of kind of here to keep the conversation going so i have a lot of times it's just so i have someone that i can directly talk to and it makes it a lot easier for me to just look across the table and say these things to you But, you know, I want the listeners to understand that, you know, I'm not just grabbing the mic and keeping you from saying what you want to say. No. This is another one of those women's issues. Can you give us a little bit of your perspective on what happened here for the purpose of letting our listeners hear from you just a little bit on this so that I don't have to hear about how I'm stealing the show? (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't say that. Well, you don't say that. (laughs) Um. Well, especially with um, the Georgia shooter, it just seems like it's the evangelical hate of women. Women first. Women first, Asians second. Yep. These are Asian women. They're just doubly cursed this year. Oh, yeah. Because a lot of women have been getting hit. It's not the men you hear about. It's the old ladies going to church on a Sunday. Old Asian ladies going to their church walking down the street and being jumped by some asshole. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You've got the racist aspect of it. You've got that signature evangelical hate. Mm -hmm. And then you've got the extra added bonus of where COVID originated. Yeah. So now anyone who is Asian, regardless of where they're from, is responsible for this. I believe that there are plenty of Christians out there that do want to peacefully coexist with everyone around them regardless of who they are where they're from what they look like or whatever i think that there are plenty of them who sincerely want to i just don't think that their faith will ever let them yeah and that's where the real problem lies as far as i'm concerned that's where it lies so to end things off here are a few of the ways that i think we can make our voices heard and bring a voice of reason into the question of gun control first it's important that we vote. Vote for candidates who advocate for gun control. I'm not suggesting that if you live in a high crime area or have other circumstances that necessitate your ability to defend yourself, you shouldn't be allowed. 
What I'm saying is that there are other ways. I'm all for keeping a firearm for home protection when it's warranted, especially since our car got broken into last week. That was very scary. So I can see wanting to have that cushion of protection for your home. But I will never advocate for a person's right to pack heat over nebulous, baseless fears instilled in them by spiritual leaders. No, that is where I draw the line. Show me what the real threat is and show me how putting guns in the hands of private citizens is going to help in this situation and I will listen. But I'm not going to listen to anything that comes from an evangelical pulpit on this matter. That's not the source that I'm going to turn to. Next, let local governmental and trustworthy law enforcement authorities decide where and when carrying a firearm by private citizens is needed or warranted. Demand full background checks and psychiatric evaluations for anyone who wants to carry a gun and make education about responsible possession and use of a firearm a mandatory and ongoing process. If you want to carry this weapon, there's going to be accountability tied to it. Period. End of story. Or better yet, why not take a few of those cops out of the safety of their cruisers and put them in those high crime areas to protect the citizens themselves? You know, as opposed to using them for revenue generating purposes like minor speeding offenses. It amazes me how often I see police cruisers on empty highways waiting to nab speeders and how seldom I see them patrolling neighborhoods for actual immediate threats to public safety. Protecting your community is their job, not yours. Make those sentiments known to your local public officials and hold cops accountable to their oaths to serve and protect. That's the answer. Taking up arms yourself is not. Also, when you see social media posts that make light of or advocate acts of gun violence, report them. Let people call you a snowflake. Let them call you a Karen. Sticks and stones may break your bones, but names will never hurt you. Perpetuating pro-gun rhetoric, that hurts everyone. See something, say something. Hold platforms like Facebook to their own community standards and shut down users who use those platforms to perpetuate fear and civil unrest. Lastly, continue shining a light on the harm that all manner of evangelical thought and behavior cultivates in society. Keep chipping away at the power they have and do what you can to make the voice of reason louder than the din of their rhetoric. Gun violence will only get worse if extreme right-wing conservatism maintains its voice. As of right now, every American voice still matters. Use yours to counter the rhetoric. Arm yourself with information, not bullets, to counter their arguments about their perceived right to bear arms and steer public thought in the direction of real solutions to this problem. Do that and you'll be doing your part to help individuals and in time society in general. Stop listening to this gospel of hate and start getting unbound. hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying 
Unbound. <laughs>